The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. The state uses its land, uh, or can in theory use its land, to provide a series of products and services that the public expects the state to provide. Uh, from leisure facilities to education to health services and to not least housing and not surprisingly as the state as the public sector has sold off its land it has sold off in the process its ability to consistently provide those services that the public requires it to provide. Welcome to City Road on 2SCR, 107.3 FM in Sydney, and podcasting on Apple Podcast. I'm Dallas Rogers, and today, part two of our chat with Professor Brett Christophers from Uppsala University about his new book, The New Enclosure, The Appropriation of Public Land in Neoliberal Britain. If you missed the first part of our discussion with Brett, then don't worry. You can catch up on the episode via our podcast or website at cityroadpod.org. In the first episode, we talked about the old enclosure acts of the last few centuries, and then we moved on to what Brett calls the new enclosure, or the privatisation of public land in the UK today. He suggested that the biggest buyers of privatised land in the UK have been property developers. So in today's episode, City Road host Dr. Sophie Weber picks up the discussion with Brett by asking him about the connections between the privatisation of public land and addressing the housing affordability problem in the UK. Starting first with a question about why urban land is in the firing line for privatisation. Local governments have been decimated, you say in your book, by privatisation. What is it about the land in cities or cities' land that is so prone to privatisation or, or so desirable to be yep. privatised? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. One of the things that is extremely important to understand about land and land value is that the value of land, not just in the UK, but elsewhere, but it's extremely noticeable in the UK, um, I think partly because it's a geographically small nation in relation to its population is that the value of land on the market varies enormously depending on the use to which that land is put and so I you know I, I don't have to have the figures off the top of my head but the you know the, the order of magnitude of difference between the value of land for agricultural use versus industrial use versus residential use we're talking not about you know two or three times we're talking about 50, 60, or over 100 times, with residential land being typically far and away the most valuable. And clearly, the value of that land is particularly valuable in in the bigger cities, and particularly in the southeast. Um, So obviously, we're talking about London there. Um, And so really understanding why that process has been so important really uh, requires us to have a handle on the different values of land, and in particular, on the role that the planning system in the UK plays in, in determining the value of land. So if, if a landowner, public or private, owns land in agricultural use, um, that landowner cannot develop that land for, say, housing development unless it secures planning permission to do so. And so the planning system really 
uh, plays this incredibly important arbitration role in arbitrating the value of land. Because if the planning department gives permission for that land to be developed from agricultural to residential use, the value of that land increases exponentially. And so what what you see, for example, in many uh, parts of the country is speculative developers, speculative investment institutions acquiring land in agricultural use in the hope that they can secure planning permission to develop it residentially. And and really understanding that role is very, very important. And within the UK, those planning powers are vested in the local authorities. So we were talking about housing. Housing is an important question. What's happened in terms of housing, the the role of land in in housing privatisation in the UK is is a very, very complicated one. But essentially what's happened is that if we go back to the end of the 1970s, the state in and through the local authorities was a major owner and provider of housing in the UK. So somewhere around 30% of all dwellings in the UK uh, consisted of council housing. And beginning with Thatcher, but continuing uh, to the present day under the so-called Right to Buy programme, which gave tenants of council housing the right to acquire uh, their house, the, the housing they rented from the state, huge amounts of that stock have, have been sold off. And so uh, today, the state is an owner of, of, of considerably less quantities of uh, council housing. Now, in recent years, the, it's become increasingly apparent that the UK is suffering from a, a pretty extensive uh, and serious housing price, crisis that manifests in, in various different ways. And, and perhaps the most obvious way in which it manifests itself is a, an extreme shortage, particularly in the major cities, of affordable uh, property both to purchase and to rent. For, in particular for low-income households, but not only for low-income households, also for, for households with, with greater means uh, than that, simply because uh, the price of property has become so expensive. And so one thing that big people are beginning to talk about is, well, after these four decades of essentially scaling back the role of local authorities in, providing, in building and providing uh, social housing, maybe there's a case for the state uh, in the form of its local authorities, to reassume a significant role in providing council housing. Um, and while the ruling uh, Tory party has for many years resisted this idea, they're beginning to push the idea a bit a bit more recently. And Theresa May has talked you know, in speeches about a new generation of council housing. Now, here's the problem, which is that you know, when uh, local authorities sit down to think about potentially uh, re-energising their role in providing uh, new social housing stock, they need a number of things to do that. Uh, most obviously, they need funding to be able to do that. And this is a, this is a considerable problem as well, because the Tories have massively restricted uh, the ability of local authorities to fund new construction. But obviously, they also need land. And what many of these local authorities are finding is that, you know, and it's, it's kind of this perverse irony which is that now they're beginning to, to think about and being given the almost encouragement to think about building council housing again, they've sold all the land they need to do that. And so they're in this, this ridiculous bind where they want to, in many cases, reassert themselves as providers of social housing, but they simply don't have the land to do it. And the means to buy the land, obviously. Yeah, and the means to buy the land. Yeah. yeah. And so one thing that people are talking about is giving local authorities the ability to buy land from the private sector, which would in many cases mean repurchasing land that they've already sold at discounted values, which is fine. You know, absolutely, I don't think there's anything wrong with that idea. 
But it, obviously it wouldn't be needed if the state hadn't been selling the land for the last 40 years. So it's extremely, um, it's extremely sad. And obviously when people discuss both political parties and, they t- and in the media, when they talk about these new ideas about of so-called compulsory purchase of land at discounted values, none of them ever mention the reason why it's required in the first place, which is the, precisely the fact that the land has been privatised. Mm. So in New South Wales, there is no move to, for the state to provide, for the local governments to provide. Or in New South Wales, it would be the state government, not the, not the local yep. governments, but the state government to provide, to buy land, to, prov- to be the kind of owner, manager and landlord essentially. For, but instead, they're giving away land to developers with the requirement that they build 20% yeah. affordable and, housing. And so this, that's absolutely been the case in the UK, right, which is an, another important part of the story which is that when uh, land has been sold to developers, specifically with a view to them building housing, quite often the state, when I talked earlier about the state bending over backwards uh, to do that, one of the ways they have done that is by attempting to secure planning permission for that land in advance of selling it so that the developer doesn't have to go through that process themselves. But part of the planning system is a very similar thing to what you talked about here, the so-called Section 106 agreements in the UK, that mean that planning permission is only given to developers for residential developments if they commit to providing a certain proportion of so-called affordable housing. Now, obviously, there's not you'll probably not be surprised to hear there's all sorts of problems with that. One is that uh, the very definition of, an aff- of affordable housing tends to be 80% of market prices. Well, in many parts of the country, uh, most obviously London, 80% of market prices is not remotely affordable. But uh, perhaps the more interesting issue is the fact that when these agreements have been made and, and developers commit to the provision of, of affordable housing, that in many cases they've been able to get out of these, they've been able to get out, reel out of these agreements. Which, uh, in, which in Vancouver, the other big housing bubble, London, Sydney, Vancouver, yeah. is what happened as well. They've just reneged on all of their agreements. Yeah. And developers the, aren't able to sell the other apartments at as high rate. Yeah. And the way they've done this in the UK, and I've, I've written about this previously as well, is that they use these so-called viability tests. And what they do is they use these models that are provided to show or at least to assert that, you know, if we build this amount of affordable housing, uh, we're not going to be able to make a profit on this development. So therefore, we're gonna, we can't go ahead. And so it's kind of a threat to them that they essentially that they make to the local authority say, well, if you really do insist on us doing this, well, I'm afraid we're not going to go ahead with the development because it's simply not viable. But the other thing that's happened, and I think this is this is arguably the biggest scandal of all, is that when so if I back up a little bit over the the period that has been happening the, the past four decades, the state has invoked a wide series of rationale for selling the land. You know, one of which is the state shouldn't be owning it in the land in the first place because the private sector is inherently more efficient in its ownership and and mobilization of resources, which is obviously a myth, an ideology. Another one has been if we release the land and um, realize the income from the sale of that land, we're able to reduce the deficit, which has been a very consistent logic that's been invoked since the financial crisis during the austerity area. Well, the IMF report shows that that's been a complete failure, given that the UK's public finances are now worse than anywhere else's. And there's been other rationale as well, but alongside the austerity and balancing the books, Uh, rationale. In the last decade, it's been overwhelmingly about providing land to developers to build housing to solve the housing crisis. Fine, you would think, yeah, we need more housing. Well, obviously, one problem with that 
is that developers typically don't want to provide housing at the income level, which is where the housing is actually needed. But the other one is that in, in many cases, developers simply haven't built on this land. They've sat on it. And the problem here is that when selling the land to developers to, uh, to build on it, the state hasn't attached any sort of requirements or obligations on these developers. It's given the land, often with planning permission or has subsequently proved planning permission, but it has not said that you have to build on it. And developers have sat on it. And, and I have a, my favourite graph in the whole book shows this direct correlation between, on the one hand, the number of uh, plots that have been sold to developers by public sector bodies over a series of years. And on, on the other hand, the number of plots sitting in the so-called land banks of these private sector developers, which have planning permission, but have simply not even been where a tractor hasn't even arrived. So they haven't even been started. So the state has been selling land and it has simply gone to sit in these developers' land banks. And there's some really interesting research that talks about why developers bank land. And obviously one of the main reasons is that if they were to build lots more housing, bring that housing to market uh, in short order, there's a risk that house prices go down because much more, uh, uh, much more housing is coming onto the market. And that's the last thing developers want. Uh, what this research that I referred to has found that typically is it's actually much more profitable to the, for these developers to sit on the land and to trade the land and play a kind of a land, a speculative land trading game than actually to build houses on it. And that's what seems to be happening. And a recent report that the government commissioned into the uh, land, the so-called land banking process, is, which is still ongoing at, at this moment, in its preliminary report, which came out in June, the person in, in charge of this research basically came to the conclusion that the developers' arguments for why they need to bank this land are essentially spurious um, and that it is about holding back land from the market to, to sustain house prices. I'm Dallas Rogers and you're listening to City Road on 2SCR, 107.3 FM in Sydney and on the web at cityroadpod.org. We're talking to Professor Brett Christophers from Uppsala University about his new book, The New Enclosure, The Appropriation of Public Land in Neoliberal Britain. Brett's been talking about the role of urban planning in housing construction and land value. He suggests that it's hard for governments to provide affordable social housing when they've sold off all their land. And he also says that many property developers in the UK land bank or sit on their land rather than building housing on it, even if they have planning approval for a housing development. In the final part of our discussion, Brett talks about the losers of the new enclosure and what Australia can learn from the UK experience. And the losers. And this is what I, I really try to dig into in the book. I mean, I, I would say that the losers uh, in this are, well, first of all, in an immediate sense, the state. And the reason I say that is that in selling assets, the state has been selling assets that in many cases were very, very valuable, but also in many cases provided a consistent income stream for the state. And I think, you know, the best example of this is the is, the, is, is a very recent one, which is uh, the example of network rail. As many listeners, I'm sure, will know, rail privatisation uh, in the UK 
um, over the over recent decades has been um, not just a very complicated process because it involves privatization both of of land and of track and of stations, but also of train operating companies. But it's been a complete disaster from start to finish. And so Network Rail is the body that owns and manages the track and most of the stations within the UK. And it was privatized. It became a body called Rail Track. But it, it was such a disaster that it was essentially re-nationalized in relatively recent times. And then literally in the, in the last couple of months, some of the land holdings of Network Rail have been re-privatized. So it's kind of gone public to private to public to private. Um, which tells you quite a lot about the, the you know the so-called success of privatization, and the land that has recently been sold was land that was typically consisted of these railway arches within the UK where small businesses uh, would reside and and provide products and services, and this provided a very very healthy income stream to the state, but it's now been sold off to the private sector. So the International Monetary Fund re- very in re- in the last couple of weeks came out with a report showing that. The UK states, uh, so the, the public finances of the UK, are in as parlous a condition of pretty much any country in the world right now. So they look at the uh, the asset side of the of the of the UK's balance sheet as a as a as a national government and and the liability side. And lo and behold, it has relatively speaking fewer assets and fewer revenue generating assets than more or less any other country in a, of, of a comparable scale and wealth. And that's precisely because it's been selling everything. And that has included land, which in many cases was revenue generating and very, 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 very valuable land. So the state has suffered. Um, but in the background, it's, it's quite clearly the UK public at large uh, that has suffered. I think I would say that for a number of different reasons. But the main one would be that, you know, if I go back to kind of where we began, the state uses its land uh, or can, in theory, use its land to provide a series of products and services that the public expects the state to provide, uh, from leisure facilities to education to health services and to not least housing. And not surprisingly, as the state, as the public sector has sold off its land, it has sold off in the process its ability to consistently provide those services that the public requires it to provide. And I think that you know, while I while I say this applies to education and health and other areas, it's quite clearly uh, the case that it applies most uh, seriously to housing, where you know a lot of a lot has been written and said about the history of privatisation of housing in the UK, uh, but I don't think enough has been said about the role specifically that land plays in this. So your book is focused on the UK, based on your quick visit to Sydney and your knowledge of New South Wales and Sydney. Do you think the same kind of processes are going on here? Or how does the idea of the new enclosure relate to what's happening in Sydney? I'm definitely no expert on land ownership and land use in parts of the world outside the UK. But certainly people I've, you know, in the few days that I've been here in Sydney this week and when I was here before, lots of people have mentioned to me the relevance of the story that I'm telling. You know, privatisation more broadly, so when we're thinking about enterprise privatisation, that was pioneered by Thatcher. In fact, Thatcher is often credited with actually even coining the term. And it subsequently got exported as an ideology and as a practice to other parts of the world. And, you know, now governments all around the world have sold off a vast range of assets inspired by the British example. And I think I, uh, I my guess is that 
the British example in the in the land context has had and is is likely having exactly the same outcome here. So I know that research has been done, for example, on on Canada by a political scientist called Heather Whiteside, which has shown that just as enterprise privatization traveled as a as an ideology and a practice from the UK to Canada, so has land privatization. And certainly everyone I've I've spoken to here has suggested that that the same thing has been happening in Australia and is happening in Australia, you know, particularly in, it, in its urban environments where the value of land uh, has become so inflated. So that's the end of our two-part discussion with Brett Christophers about his new book, The New Enclosure, The Appropriation of Public Land in Neoliberal Britain. You can find this two-part episode at City Road Podcast or on our website at cityroadpod.org. And if you like this discussion about land and housing, you might also like our City Road episode on the history of the Torrens Land Title Registration System with Dr Sarah Keenan. It's a killer interview and an amazing story. You can check it out on our website. I'm Dallas Rogers. You're listening to City Road on 2SER 107.3 FM in Sydney and podcasting around the world on Apple Podcast. See you next time.